Welcome to Strategy Talk, where the editors of Strategy Page discuss current events with a splash of history. I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk. With me today is the editor of Strategy Page, well-known military author and game designer, Jim Dunnigan. Also joining us is the associate editor of Strategy Page, columnist and author, Austin Bay. Welcome, Austin and Jim. It's that time of year where we uh, look towards the future. Uh, we do this every year, sort of to see what's going to, uh, like uh, I was talking to you guys before, what's going to smack us in the face in 2019. Austin, you say that uh, there's things that are already hitting us uh, that are, you know, maybe not surprises, but things that we should have seen coming. Well, uh, look, the future is now, Dan, with some of these things. And look, I, I, let me give my new book, Cocktails from Hell, a little push, because the analysis behind that helps uh, readers un understand why so many of these things are rooted, not uh, only in the last uh, five or six minutes, the way they make it look on uh, on telev television, but uh, in, in some cases, four and five hundred years ago, ago uh, or more. Uh, the problems in Venezuela, actually, you can you can see the, the roots of these from the 1940s and 1950s. But Venezuela is corroding right now. Uh, they're losing so many. Venezuelans have decided to flee their economic and political refugees simultaneously. The economy is uh, <laughs> has no. No heartbeat, no detectable, no detectable brain, uh, brain waves. Uh, Maduro, who is the uh, dictator, is a. To compare him to Mussolini is unfair to Mussolini, I, which is a, 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 a. I guess that's kind of a put down. Right? Uh, it's a. It's a. It's a real. Uh, uh, put down, and yet they sit on, and Jim and I, briefly touched on this in a strategy talk, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, somewhere between 300 and 400 billion barrels of oil. Uh, proven reserves are usually put uh, the 250 to 300 range, but there's enough, what you, know, you read the uh, oil and gas uh, professional press, there's enough structure in there for uh, substantially more than that. In other words, and I'm, I'm putting it at 33 percent, 400 billion. It's high sulfur oil. But just so you know, that's something that is useful for turning into diesel and all kinds of uh, uh, other products, even though it's it's tough. It's harder to refine it uh, for uh, ga uh, gasoline. But that is a lot of very useful petroleum. And yet Venezuela is flat on its face thanks to a rapacious socialist regime, there are calls from the legislature. And by the way, I'm going to write a column about this next week. <clears throat> yeah, in some ways I'm uh, a year behind because uh, Jim covers this in the Columbia section all the time about what's the, the dreariness of, uh, of Venezuela. But the legislature, which has a lot of opposition uh, politicians in it. I'm talking about the legitimate one, not the fake one that Maduro uh, kind of sort of created, uh, what, two and a half, three years ago, uh, is al almost calling for a, uh, it is calling for a, a, a coup, 
uh, and uh, appealing for outside intervention. Well, where would that come from? And uh, one of the articles that, that I read discussing this is, are they looking for uh, the United States to move in? And uh, Trump says he isn't going to do it. Are they looking for Colombia? Boy, that would be a, a conflagration. Are they looking for Brazil? They don't know who they're looking for. They're looking for anyone. I'm talking about the opposition. Most of the people are as well. So there's something that is with us, and you can see the shape of this collapse, I would say from the time that Hugo Chavez uh, uh, came to power and then proceeded to end the what shreds of democracy uh, were left in, in Venezuela, already occurring. Congo, uh, Jim and I talked about that, I know, a, a couple of weeks ago, and I, I write about Congo all the time. Well, the election was hijacked in a rather clever way by uh, Joseph Kabila and uh, his henchmen. Uh, there is widespread opposition to the fact that Cheskedi won. I don't have anything against uh, him uh, in particular, but he com uh, compared to Fayulu, he he's, he's weak, and Kabila can exert more control over him. It was a uh, you know, fake election, again. So far, we haven't had the explosion, but there are little explosions going on all around Congo, uh, if not all the time, 85% of the time. So you, you, do we see uh, a, a new great Congo war. I don't dismiss the possibility. I find it unlikely because there's still 16,500 UN peacekeepers there, and they're by far the strongest military force uh, in, 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 in Congo. But it's a conflagration, and uh, it is very much with us. I will uh, right now just go ahead and turn it over to, uh, turn it over to Jim. Uh, I think the situation has not changed much since uh, 2018 in terms of what are the threats uh, to uh, you know world peace, shall we say? Uh, a lot of these wars are are almost forever wars. In other words, they they go on interminably. Now we have had wars end. I mean, we've been covering wars. This is our 20th year in business. And before that, I did a book called How to Stop a War, which basically uh, took a look at all the wars in the previous 200 years. And a lot of them came and went. But what struck me when we did that book back in the 80s was that uh, there are so many areas of the world which are perpetually, you know, in conflict or reigniting uh, because there are unresolved problems. Um, and uh, until those, as people like to say, the fundamental problems, well, the fundamental problems are not easy to fix. Uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, generations. Uh, and you can look at other parts of the world where uh, these fundamentals have been, you know, uh, fixed. And you can see there's no quick fix. And that's the problem we uh, get ourselves in in the West. Uh, we think, all right, let's win this one and go home. Well, it's not that simple uh, in many parts of the world. Uh, world War II, uh, World War One, many parts of those two world wars uh, were over um, and settled. Uh, but in many parts of the world, uh, things don't work that way. Uh, and, and Central Africa is part of that. Uh, Congo is probably the worst example. Um, it's a huge area. 
it was it was it was terribly uh, you know uh, misruled uh, during the the Belgian uh, you know, occupation, so to speak. Uh, it was actually not. Uh, the problem was it wasn't a Belgian colony. It was the personal property of the uh, of of the uh, Belgian king, King uh, Leopold. It was his uh, property. Uh, and boy, was he a bad manager. Uh, you wouldn't want him as a landlord. And um, Read Conrad's uh, Heart of Darkness, because that shows you that from the absolutely obscene and vicious side of what was going on in Congo at the time. It's a, it's a novel that absolutely captures the depravity. So, yeah. But see, the other thing that, that, that comes out with, uh, with Leopold and, and, and the Belgian Congo is that he basically took advantage of existing, you know, conditions. There were tribal conflicts that had been going on before he showed up. And just like the conquistadors in, in, in Central and South America, uh, they quickly, uh, you know, apprised themselves of existing conflicts and took sides. And uh, that's the easiest way to uh, reignite a war, to have somebody else come in and, you know, take sides. And that's why, for example, in Venezuela, nobody wants to get involved. Because that's a that's a it's a snake pit, you know. It, it's a poison prize. All that oil, forget about it. Uh, China is probably the smartest of the foreign interveners because they're going in there and they're very cleverly they're investing money, not a whole lot, not as much as the Venezuelans would like, but in the areas of the uh, the uh, oil industry that the uh, the Chinese have basically taken charge of about ten percent. They've doubled the uh, production in you know in, in 2018. Uh, and they're basically, it's a demonstration project for them. They want to show Venezuelans that no matter who is misruling the country, China can be depended on to get do what it says it's going to do. It's going to pump more oil. It's going to take a large chunk of it for, for itself to pay for the, you know, the, the loans. But, it, you know, it's a reliable thief as opposed to an unreliable thief. And, um, and that basically is a big selling point in many parts of the world. China is also very active in the Congo, <laughs> where a large chunk of the economy is not, how should I put it, illegal. Uh, coltan, a lot of valuable minerals. Uh, <clears throat> the, no, no legitimate company can produce uh, as much as the world wants, but you know, less legitimate operations can. Uh, no regulations, uh, you know, uh, pay whatever, whoever you have to pay, kill whoever you have to kill. And, uh, and keep production going. Um, we see that in uh, even a place like Afghanistan, where there was uh, there was some illegal gold mining. Well, now there's legal gold mining going up there. But once you get legal gold mining, uh, it's long overdue. They've known about those gold deposits up there for a long time, northern Afghanistan. Uh, you uh, you immediately you know attract two things. One. Uh, off, yes, in the cold weather, when there, there's no crops or, or herds to, to mine uh, full time, uh, you attract a lot of locals who realize they always knew there was some gold there. But now these foreigners have come in and found out where the biggest concentrations are. And they sneak in. And in Afghanistan, what they were doing was digging tunnels to the, uh, to the uh, professional mines. And one of these tunnels collapsed and caught 50 people in there. You know, uh, working away, and thirty of them are dead. Uh, that's the same thing that's happening in northern Burma. So, you have problems where more economic activity, which normally should basically bring uh, peace, brings more conflict. 
because it's the question of, well, who's getting the money? Who's benefiting from, from this? Uh, that's the problem with oil in many parts of the world. Uh, Nigeria is a classic example. Uh, you've had low-level uh, rebellion in the Niger River Delta, where most of the oil is, because the, uh, <laughs> they finally did an audit. And uh, there have been some reform, you know, governments in the last uh, 20 years in in uh, in Nigeria. And they basically concluded that most of the oil profits were stolen. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars worth. And they're still they still have in, uh, from current audits. They have 20, 30 billion that they can identify. And they sort of they sort of know what black hole it disappeared into. And there's all uh, it's making lawyers rich in Europe because they're litigating, you know, about these uh, well numbered bank accounts, secret bank accounts. But we're talking about accounts with hundreds of millions of dollars in them uh, belonging to uh, various uh, kleptocracy, you know, elite families uh, in Nigeria, which have gotten which have gotten away with this, uh, you know, over decades. Jim, uh, Jim, you can I, I'm sorry. Oh, can I make a, po- a point about this, though, that's relevant yeah. uh, to Congo? as well as Nigeria, there is a lot of anger from, uh, you want to call uh, tribal leaders, uh, average average Joe and Josephine, and the middle classes that do exist in, in, in Congo and Nigeria, because they know that this scam has been going on. That's the way uh, Feulu ran on that in the Congolese election, and it's well known that a lot of Nigerians are fed up with it. And that's the kind of anger that can explode. Now, I didn't mean to interrupt, but it's... No, but, you know, but, but you're right. But see, that's another reason why China has been has going to have at least short-term success, because what they do is they eliminate the local middle class. The Chinese deal is, is that if you want us to meet our guarantees in terms of price and, uh, and, and you know, and, uh, and deadlines, finishing a project... Uh, we supply most of the labor, and that includes all the skilled labor, uh, I mean unskilled, and a lot of the unskilled labor. Uh, so it brings in very few jobs, and a lot of those Chinese who are brought in, whether it be Africa or different parts of you know the Asia, uh, they also want the option for some of those Chinese uh, to stay behind and help the economy. In other words, take over the economy. Uh, because the Chinese are much more entrepreneurial. They, they know how to basically run a chain of uh, stores or a distribution network and what have you. Um, and the local dictators prefer that there not be a thriving middle class, because as Austin points out, and well, you look they at get angry, history, they get angry. Well, not only can they get angry, but they know how to get organized. Sure. And uh, and most of your revolution, successful revolutions, uh, come from you know the uh, not the rich, but the but the educated. That's why after World War II, the Russians eliminated the NCO uh, class, as it were. There were no NCOs in the army. All supervision was done by people who were officers because they they looked at the last two revolutions and 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 the, the main source of leaders in the revolution were NCOs. So that and that's interesting because it goes to show you that it's a universal problem. Uh, you don't want to just you know cut off the head. You want to get rid of the many many uh, potential successors. Um, and this is a problem in many parts of the world. Because there, there is no educated class. In fact, this is, I don't know, it's not intentionally, but in many Muslim countries where the, uh, the religious conservatives have been opposed to Western education. In other words, education that is economically useful and not just, you know, 
politically or theologically useful. Um, they they basically uh, are find friends in whoever's the dictator du jour, uh, because uh, both of them realize that if you educate people with useful skills, economically useful skills, uh, they will look around and say, well, what do we need you clowns for? Again, this is an old situation. Uh, it's, it's what, now it, it's not new. I mean, ancient Rome basically uh, thrived for so long. The Republic lasted 500 years because they had a middle class. Uh, the yeoman class, you know, the farmers who were self-sustaining, worked, uh, you know, loaned their own property and what have you. Uh, you had to be one of those to be in the army. If you couldn't afford your own armor, you, you go in the Navy and you, and you row a boat and have a spear next to you in case you were boarded. Uh, and uh, uh, this, this, this keeps on working. Uh, create a yeoman class, as it were, and you'll create national prosperity. Uh, and this is what happens to the far, you know, the five tigers in the Far East, the small countries, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, uh, Singapore, uh, and even Muslim countries. I mean, uh, uh, Malaysia did that, even though they had it's mostly Muslim and they have huge uh, ethnic differences. Uh, they basically allowed Western education. Uh, they still had a, you know, they still had a lot of, you know, Muslim conservatives, but they were basically, uh, how should I put it, outnumbered. And outmanned, as it were, there, uh, by, the, by, the, by the more secular middle class. And that's at the key of a lot of these conflicts in places like Iraq and Syria and even Iran, uh, which encourages education. Uh, but they, they find that finding that they can't really control it. I was going to make a point about Malaysia, uh, General, uh, in line with what you were saying. Malaysia still had a, a relationship with Singapore, and yeah. Singapore is a living example right there, right across the strait, which uh, is the moderates within uh, Malaysia, and there are many would point over there and say, hey, look, look at what our, our, our former uh, um, nations are like, look, look, look what they're doing, and uh, that would cool uh, – uh, cool some of the uh, some of the extremists. Uh, uh, J- uh, Jim, do you want to pick up a couple of other hot spots? I'm going uh, uh, that. Uh, yeah. Well, throw- actually, actually, I I brought up that theme, education and economic productivity, because it is a common thread in all of these conflicts. I mean, here, let me just run through the list. I mean, I I got a list here which I'll run you know next week. Islamic terrorism, I mentioned that, that a root cause of Islamic terrorism is resistance to economic change, useful economic change. Uh, Syria and the Levant, uh, again, that is all about the Assads uh, basically wanting to run, you know, a, a, a you know, a, 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 what they used to call fascist, real fascist, where you had uh, a dictatorship, but a free economy. They were a fairly prosperous economy. He allowed it as long as you didn't oppose his power. North Korea, another example. They never had that until the 90s, until they, the Russian support got cut off. And suddenly, uh, well, 10% of the population starved to that. But aside from that, uh, wake-up call, uh, they eventually legalized a lot of the black market and you know, market activity. They had a fairly well-educated population, uh, didn't know a lot about, you know, what really went on in the rest of the world in terms of economics, uh, but they could read, write, count, etc. And these, this part of the population quickly adapted. This is seen as the major threat to, North, to the Kim dynasty, Kim rule. They won't say that, that the threat is internal. They keep saying, oh, no, it's external. It's the United States, it's South Korea, etc., etc., Japan. Uh uh, you know, don't look behind the screen. You know, it's over there, the real enemy. Um, 
And uh, you got the same problem in Venezuela. What has most of the uh, the vast majority of the uh, of the uh, the uh, the exiles, as it were, the refugees, the first ones to go are the ones who can afford to get out, uh, buy a plane ticket, not just make a run for the border. Uh, that's the middle class. You saw the same thing in Cuba, you know, in the uh, late fifties, early sixties. Um, uh, Iran is facing that. The a lot of the middle class has run out, but the but the religious dictatorship was smart enough to allow a lot of them to operate as long as they didn't oppose, you know, the the the, the rule of the uh, the religious leaders. And now that's changing, and that's scaring them. Uh, and it, it goes on and on. Afghanistan, Afghanistan never really had a middle class because they were always very, basically, a very primitive area. I mean, people like to say Afghanistan's never been successfully invaded. That's nonsense. Look at a look at a good history of, of Afghanistan. They've been invaded many times, but the invader comes, does what they have to do, and turns around and says, "Eh, let's go on." And this so it was it was a place worth conquering under certain circumstances, but it was not a place worth staying in. And so it was just like a black hole in the map. Uh, there are many areas like that in the world. They eventually get, get, they get gobbled up by some empire and just get, be administered. <coughs> but they exist. Uh, Kurdistan is, a, is another matter. Kurdistan is one of the rare conflicts we have still going on. You know, that this, this conflict going on simultaneously in Turkey, uh, Iran, Syria, and Iraq, where you have uh, very capable, in other words, middle class, uh, economically viable, organized uh, minorities uh, who all share a common, you know, uh, culture and want an independent, you know, uh, Kurdistan, but they're not going to get it because they all had the misfortune of uh, being made part of uh, various uh, local empires, especially the Turkish and the Iranian, uh, and and that it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a shame, you know, it's a tragedy, but it's there. It's it's a constant risk. It's constantly stirring up problems in all these countries uh, because you know. Nasty things are done to suppress uh, these rebellious Kurds, um, and uh, and and every time we've been any foreign power like the United States in Iraq or in Syria, uh, or even during the Syrian civil war, the Kurds were always the most capable local forces, and they were technically rebels, but they would cooperate with the Assad, you know, government. Uh, if it suited both their interests, and they're still willing to do that. The problem is, and this is really, this is ironic as hell, that the Turks do not want an autonomous, you know, uh, Kurdish region in, in northeastern Assyria, because they saw what happened over in Iraq, they become so powerful, they're much more difficult to control, and they become a potential, uh, how should I put it, uh, that tinder, you know, uh, you know, a place for our, a a true Kurdistan movement to get started and 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 work. Now another middle class, you know, uh, chaos problem is Pakistan. Pakistan has been a problem ever since it was, you know, uh, formed uh, out of British India back in the uh, after World War, right after World War Two. Uh, India basically uh, created a, a well first a political miracle. Now they're trying to finally catch up with the economic miracle, but they created India created a few a, a actually functioning uh, federal democracy, the largest one in the world, um, and it's a it's a it's, you know it's a ramshackle operation, uh, a lot of problems, but it works. 
the the uh, you know the vote the vote the elections are fairly you know fair by world standards. Uh, Pakistan, on the other hand, uh, drifted into uh, you know basically uh, well, military dominated, as, as the old saying goes, it's an army with a country attached. Um, and although many Pakistanis looking at over what's going on in India said, hey, why don't we, you know, India is pulling ahead of us. Uh, why don't we operate how they do? The army said, no, 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 no. India is the threat. Everybody was the threat as far as the army was concerned. And it, that's basically a scam, which they're still getting away with. But to do that, they have to keep stoking wars in, Af- in Afghanistan, uh, in parts of India, you know, Kashmir. And and they they their their tentacles, as it were, have shown up in other states that aren't even adjacent to Pakistan. You know, like uh, uh, like uh, Burma and Bangladesh, which used to be part of uh, Pakistan, um, and even Central Asia. Uh, and they've allied with China, who understands that problem and has taken care of it. Uh, and uh, you know, you basically ally with people who have similar problems. And in China's case, have more effective solutions. But like the Chinese solutions basically involve, you know, extreme, extremely violent, you know, reprisals of any uh, anti-state activity. And the Pakistanis just haven't got the wherewithal to actually implement that. So the pot simmers. It's still a very, how should I put it, uh, big source of local, you know, uh, regional, you know, instability. Iran is serving the same uh, purpose. Uh, I, the Iranians have always been the local superpower. Uh, they're clashing with the Turks, or before that, the Romans. Uh, and um, the uh, the Iranians basically, you know, they just have. They've always been more into technology, education, uh, <coughs> highly organized you know, state structures. Uh, they also had a big deal, a big thing with civil wars. But the Arabs fear them because the only thing that the Arabs have gotten in the last, you know, uh, 60, 70 years is uh, over a trillion dollars in oil wealth. Uh, and as the Saudis and many of the other uh, Gulf Arab oil states have discovered, oil money isn't enough. And now they're rapidly trying to adapt to a, well, the oil is going to eventually run out or at least run down, not be as abundant. Um, and uh, they're finally facing the music after 50 years of uh, putting most of uh, the cash into consumption and not into building an, an infrastructure, a uh, you know, a, a economic infrastructure. Uh, and although Iran, you know, uh, portrays the Arabs as the inefficient, you know, threat to, to uh, world peace, it's actually the Iranians who are the, who are the bigger threat uh, and the more serious threat. Uh, the authorities, uh, the Gulf Arabs are trying to fix things and the Iranians simply want to do what they've always done and take over things. Uh, Dan, let me pick up a couple of things. Uh, Jim's, uh, uh, just a segue, Iranian meddling has, has turned so many other countries against uh, the Iranians and uh, be, well, meddling like they're doing in, in Syria, uh, violent meddling in Syria and, and, and Yemen as well, and, and in, uh, on virtually on every inhabited continent, with possible exception of Australia, uh, they've, the Iranians have, have used uh, terror and crime um, and bribery. And uh, also uh, smuggling, when I say, say crime, to uh, stir the pot. They've created a lot of enemies, but they're, they've also, as Jim pointed out, their <clears throat> their own population, well, not just their middle class, but I would even say some of their 
their rural poor have had it with uh, the uh, failures of the uh, Ayatollah dictatorship. See some instability there, possibly. But you were asking about things that maybe uh, may come to uh, four in 2019. I'll, I'll add another one. I think it's already breaking out now. And my column this week on Chinese spies getting blowback. China's part and parcel of the economic and diplomatic war that the United States uh, and Japan, <clears throat> I'll say, uh, take U.S. and Japan and Australia as the leaders on this, are waging uh, with uh, the People's Republic of China uh, right now. But it's not just the uh, those three. I, I think you could include several other countries, uh, South Korea as another example. But the the, the biggest pressure coming from uh, the U.S. and and Japan and and Australia uh, to oppose uh, many of the. Uh, uh, devious economic and diplomatic uh, initiatives that Beijing is uh, attempting to execute. And the spying and intellectual property theft is so egregious that now you're seeing, we, we saw that in, in December, the U.S. get Canada uh, to arrest uh, the senior financial officer of a major Chinese telecommunications company that many uh, Defense and intelligence officials uh, and very well-informed journalists think it operates as a front for uh, Beijing, you know, Chinese, uh, Chinese uh, uh, intelligence. And that's, that is a big deal. You could argue that this uh, company, and uh, Jim, am I pronouncing it right, Huawei? Huawei. Yahweh, yeah, that's right. Huawei, Huawei. Okay. Uh, is... is um, <laughs> engaged in, in various acts of war. Uh, hey, nation spy, but this is, has been uh, portrayed itself as being engaged in, 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 commercial, in commercial projects. It, it's not the only one. D to give you some roots on it, as I do in the column in February of last year, you had the director of national intelligence, CIA, FBI and the like, testifying in the uh, Senate in Intelligence uh, Committee that they wouldn't buy the, these projects and they products of these companies, and they were very, very suspicious of their uh, activities. But now, uh, blowback, uh, legal warfare against uh, the illegal activities, and the, uh, the theft of intellectual property has damaged well, I'll just say numerous countries, not just in uh, the West or uh, American uh, allies. And when I'm saying West, free markets, because uh, South Korea and Japan and Taiwan certainly and Singapore all all uh, make uh, uh, make that uh, make that cut. They've damaged individual, genuine commercial companies by stealing their intellectual property, their patents, and the like, and then using it for their own commercial purposes and the Chinese pay no royalties and they've gotten away with it because if you try to prosecute them inside China it's all is lost in the, the dictatorship and, and cronyism well is this uh, a shooting war that uh, that, that fits the, the typical mold no it's not but I'll tell you what it is it, this is this is big league 
do we cover it? Yeah, a lot of this gets covered when when Jim writes about uh, Korea and, and China and, and the like, and then when I come back and specify uh, an issue like this. But I think we're going to see a lot more of this uh, lawfare, legal legal warfare, uh, diplomatic uh, warfare, and there'll have, be an economic dimension, which in the economic dimension is is the United States imposing tariffs and punishing. Uh, mainland China for for these activities in an attempt to encourage through a mild coercion uh, the Beijing to stop it and uh, a, a, and control it and 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 that arrest of the senior uh, executives is an example of uh, what some folks call legal you know, you know legal power it certainly is legal power of course right now China has gone and done what they've arrested. Uh, I read the 12 or 13 Canadian citizens who are in China. All of them seem to be businessmen and women, and they essentially take taken hostages. That's what they is what the Chinese government did because they want Canada to send this executive back to uh, uh, back to Beijing and not uh, allow her to be extradited to the United States. I would I would call that diplomatic and 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 and, and legal warfare. It's not bullets, but it's the kind of predecessor reaction that could lead to bullets. One of the things I'm interested in, Jim, is the ongoing friction between India and China. What is the potential there for any, you know, flare-ups over the, or is, or is it like Austin's talking about, it's going to be economic warfare? Well, there, there is no uh, real economic warfare between China and India. Uh, because India is such a large and a different market. Uh, yes, the Indians do buy a lot of they buy a lot of Huawei phones. They'll, they'll buy the the uh, you know the inexpensive but high quality smartphones that, that Chinese firms like Huawei uh, turn out. But uh, they have paid attention to the security problems. Uh, India is not so much worried about intellectual property, you know, patents. They, they've never been a huge uh, producer of patents because it wasn't until the 90s they realized, hmm, you know, our, our socialist approach uh, maybe isn't working out so well. So bingo, they finally got religion oh, more than a decade after the Chinese, and they're trying to catch up. But they're, they, they have far more problems with corruption. That's another, that's another story. But the uh, Indians, the Indian problems are mainly, you know, China wants big chunks of uh, India, uh, which at one point in time or in the past, you know, could, can, could theoretically be called under, you know, Chinese control. But it's a very vague and uh, not a, a strong claim. Um, and it hasn't been exercised, it hasn't been, been, you know, brought up for a long time. Uh, and the areas in question are really, you know, mountainous or jungle you know, not populated. They're not. They're not economically valuable. It's more, you know, a matter of you know nationalism. You can't just you know cut our country apart as you wish. Uh, but if the Chinese want to go after something, no matter how powerful the target country is, they will do it. Uh, right now, the the Indian claims are on hold because the Chinese fear they have more problems to deal with. With you know a resurgent United States, you know the trade war, which is hitting them where it really hurts. Uh, the continuing problems in North Korea, and of course, the more countries uh, basically forming an alliance in the South China Sea and being extremely, you know, how should I put it, uh, impolite when China tries to assert any kind of authority in the South China Sea. So they realize, you know, all right, let's put this on hold for a while 
and but they'll come back to it. But I wanted to make a point <coughs> that one of the first uh, victims of uh, the intellectual property theft um, for China was not the West, but was Russia. Uh, after the Soviet Union collapsed, um, and basically the <laughs> the Great Red Army uh, basically disappeared, poof, eighty percent of it, you know, was gone. Uh, Russia suddenly didn't have a huge, uh, you know, uh, army of uh, soldiers in, in far eastern uh, Russia on the Chinese border. And basically, the, the Russian Far East, which is claimed, which is which was actually the claims were revived by Mao Zedong, you know, after the uh, after the Korean War. Um, uh, they they were they were basically uh, unprotected. Uh, and the Chinese had nuclear weapons, so you know it was a nuclear stalemate. But the but the Chinese began blatantly stealing Chinese uh, Russian military technology. Now we've covered this a strategy page, and, and really this is no secret. But they were stealing aircraft designs, engine designs, weapons designs, and what have you. But one thing we noted was that although they would they would copy this stuff and build it for themselves, if it was a clear you know, uh, rights violation, you know, if you put it before any, uh, you know, even-handed judge said, well, yeah, this is basically, this new Chinese aircraft is basically a copy of the, you know, the SU whatever, the big 20 uh, something, um, they would not export it. Uh, the only aircraft they export are the ones that they have clear title to the intellectual property behind it. Uh, and, there's, and they still haven't been able to make a deal with the Russians. They had a truce. They finally made a truce with the Russians uh, after 2000. Uh, and uh, it's a questionable if the Chinese are really, you know, obeying it. But they really don't need it anymore. They've stolen so much intellectual property from the United States and the West that they can basically uh, start. And they have been doing that, basing their new uh, internal, you know, or completely Chinese designs like the J-20 stealth fighter. Uh, and the, uh, the J-35 uh, on um, on their own work, original work, based upon stolen American technology. And that's one reason why, you know, and a lot of people don't understand that. They have, most Americans don't appreciate the scope of the stolen uh, property, intellectual property. And this stuff is extremely valuable. I mean, the patent, Apple computer makes a large chunk of its income from its, its, its patent royalties. You know, companies have spent billions, tens of billions of dollars on research over decades. Uh, they get patents on a lot of those new ideas. And when they suddenly become extremely valuable commercially, uh, they expect to get paid. They got to make the money back. Otherwise, who's going to invest that kind of money uh, in new technology? I mean, this is the foundation of the, uh, you know, the, basically the Western economic miracle. Um, and the Chinese say, well, all right, but you owe us. You know, they pick them up with all sorts of excuses, you know, uh, uh, China's been crapped on for two centuries. I mean, China basically crapped on itself, but you can't, that they wouldn't even accept that as an opening argument. Uh, and, uh, and they just ignore it and they get away with it. And the Chinese people, you know, they say, well, hey, that's cool. That's that we've always rolled. Uh, but, uh, it's not the way that the, you know, the industrialized, uh, you know, world rolls. And, uh, and that's what this trade war is basically about, uh, and it is, it's basically, you know, uh, shipping wealth and job potential back to the United States. Uh, and a lot of Americans understand that, even though it's politically incorrect, you know, to, to put it in those terms. But it is, all, it is basically about, you know, uh, America took a big hit economically. That means people lost jobs. 
uh, you know, uh, uh, assets became, you know, less valuable uh, because the Chinese just stole it and they're still stealing it. Some people say the cyber war is going to be a big war, but it has been technically for, for that bunch uh, for, for years, for over a decade. But the thing is, uh, cyber war, you know, uh, stealing technology via the Internet uh, has been around for a long time. Uh, it's become more endemic as more modern economies become dependent upon this connectivity, you know, for much economic uh, progress. Uh, all progress comes with some, you know, hidden prices they don't tell you about. It's like buying a used car. And uh, the problem is that the, uh, the, the hackers, it's easy to hide uh, your, your tracks. And it's not impossible. So it's possible to say, hey, all these attacks have come from northern China, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, to find a court <laughs> that will basically, uh, you know, uh, look at that evidence and, and make a fair decision on it is impossible because these are national level, uh, you know, uh, conflicts, as it were. And the Chinese basically, they don't recognize. I mean, an international uh, court, uh, UN uh, court, uh, you know, arbitration on naval uh, matters, she ruled against them in the South China Sea. And they said, well, we don't ignore it. You know, we refuse to accept your jurisdiction. Uh, and so they, and they've been doing that for a long time. They make their own rules. Uh, and this is where they're getting into a problem with the rest of the industrialized world, uh, who are basically saying, all right, the United States is taking the lead. They're saying enough. Uh, if you want to, if you want to enjoy the benefits of our world economy, you got to play by some of the rules. And this is why, uh, the China, the trade war, as it were, uh, right now, it's just a lot of, uh, you know, basically shouting and arm bending, um, and, but China's running really scared because they are the more vulnerable uh, side of this. They're not completely, you know, at, 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 at the mercy of, of the United States or the West, but they are the ones who could basically uh, trip and fall more easily uh, than the United States. And uh, that's why it's dangerous, because they will, they will, of course, blame this on American aggression and call for more severe, you know, uh, countermeasures. They won't. China doesn't really want to get into a war. I mean, they can do the math. They realize any 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 war, any especially large scale war, even if it's not nuclear, is going to ruin the the uh, you know the new uh, bright and shiny productive Chinese economy, and that is political suicide for what is still a communist police state. They basically made a deal with the Chinese people. You know, cooperate with us, and you can get rich. I mean, they they literally said that that Deng Xiaoping. You know, in the 1980s, it is it's glorious to get rich as long as you don't threaten the state. And Chinese Chinese can understand that because that's basically been the, the basic rule in China Chinese empires for over thousands of years. Um, but as soon as you hit people in the paycheck, uh, especially since they won't they they have millions of families for the first time in their long family histories, they've tasted you know affluence, and they say, hey, this is good. Uh, and now you're going to take it away. It doesn't work. And so that's why China is going to be, you know, a potential hotspot for uh, a long time to come because things do not change fast in China. Okay, Dan. Dan, Jim just uh, essentially reinforced what I said about how this, how how this is, uh, I <laughs> multi-pronged, multi-dimensional. But this is a, a part of that big confrontation between uh, China. I'd say China and, and the. Uh, uh, rest of the, uh, let's put it in quotation marks, commercially honest 
most of the time uh, world. And that, that's that's the where the economic warfare is really the most potent tool that uh, the U.S. and not just the U.S., Japan, South Korea, uh, Europe uh, has vis-a-vis uh, 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 Beijing. There's also another component, and I'm going to get, uh, get a little, you know, now and down into the covert. Uh, <clears throat> I hate the term hybrid war because hot war has always been a hybrid. But a lot of these places where the Chinese have moved in as uh, neo-imperialists, and they talked about it in Venezuela, also see it in Congo. The, those folks, you know, your the regime change there, and then. I went back to anger. Well, anger can, can be expressed in a lot of ways, but it's we tossed you guys out. We don't recognize the deals uh, the dictatorship made with with Beijing, and then China's left trying to use some of these legal mechanisms, which Beijing ignores, and uh, uh, trying to use those uh, to to get its investment back. This is this is why when the U.S. Uh, uh, Washington talks to Beijing, why don't you guys play it straight because it can come back and bite you too. And what Jim was referring to about the, he, when he said the naval, it was a, you know maritime uh, rights in the South China Sea because the Philippines filed in uh, the Hague's Court of Arbitration using the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, which China signed without coercion and was an advocate of, the Philippines had signed, that they use that as the basis for the decision, and 99.5 percent of what of the Filipino uh, complaints. I'm saying overwhelming number. You know, it depends on how you would arrive at 99 percent. Overwhelmingly, the Philippines uh, complaints were supported by the court, and China, as Jim said, just ignored it. Okay, you guys are going to play by the rules. Is this a war? It's an economic war. Maybe maybe that's a good place to end it today. I think so. Um, we've covered a, we've covered a lot of uh, space, and there's a you know it's going to be interesting to watch this year as it is all the years that we've been in business. And uh, we'll talk to you gentlemen next time. Goodbye, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.